You are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland, Maine. Show summaries are available at doctorlisa.org. Download and become a podcast subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial through iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program. Uh, technology is integral to keeping and fostering that community in between events, but that opportunity to come together, be in person, put the phones down and look at each other in the eyes and say, what are you passionate about? And tell me about that and connect on that level is vital. And that's the real glue. The, the rest is kind of a reaching out for one another where we can start to get a sense, but the magic happens once we come together and we can be with one another in that space. I wish I could write a book on conversations. I think a conversation is the most radical thing anyone can do because a conversation is open-ended and it's not about the truth. It's a medium for staying connected and being alive. And the moment somebody shows up with the absolute truth, they, they, they change everything and they create a divided community. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin at Remax Heritage, Robin Hodgkin at Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Marcy Booth of Booth Financial Services, UNE, the University of New England, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Apothecary by Design, and The Body Architect. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 51, Global Villages, airing for the first time on September 2nd, 2012, on WLOB and WPEI Radio, Portland, Maine. The show is also available streaming live, wlobradio.com, and via podcast on iTunes. Show segments and full shows are available on doctorlisa.org. Sitting in the studio with me this morning is my co-host, Genevieve Morgan, part of my global village. Hi, Genevieve. Hi, Lisa. Isn't it interesting that we're talking on Labor Day, and it seems to take a lot of labor to create a global village. We've been thinking that we are creating this global village in a small way, um, and hopefully a bigger way as we go along. And we know that it's happening. We know that the conversation is being generated because people contact us via Facebook, they send us emails, they stop us on the street. You know, it's it's been a very interesting process and it's one that is so valuable. So it's interesting for us also to be speaking with Adam Burke and Anwar Majid because they're doing something similar and they've understand they've understood the challenges and also the hope that's generated and the inspiration and the difficulties. So it's it's helpful for us to sit amongst like-minded individuals as we try to create our own global village. Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is proud to be sponsored by the University of New England. Sponsorship of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast has included for the past year a wonderful segment we call UNE Innovations. This week's UNE Innovation talks about relationships. Early relationships, not brain power, are the key to adult happiness. Social connection is a more important route to adult well-being than academic ability. This study, from the Journal of Happiness Studies, 
tells us that positive social relationships in childhood and adolescence are key to adult well-being. Associate Professor Craig Olson of Deakin University and the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and Australia and his colleagues tell us that academic achievement appears to have little effect on adult well-being. The exploratory work is published online in the Springer's Journal of Happiness Studies. Olson and his team analyzed data for 804 people followed up for 32 years and explored the relative importance of early academic and social pathways to adult well-being. In particular, they measured the relationship between level of family disadvantage in childhood, social connectedness in childhood, language development in childhood, social connectedness in adolescence, academic achievement in adolescence, and well-being in adulthood. The researchers found a strong pathway from child and adolescent social connectedness to adult well-being that illustrates the enduring significance of positive social relationships over the lifespan to adulthood. The analysis also suggests that the social and academic pathways are not intimately related to one another and may be parallel paths requiring investments beyond development of the academic curriculum. For more information on this innovation, visit dsctorlisa.org. For more information on the University of New England, visit une.edu. This portion of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast has been brought to you by the University of New England, UNE, an innovative health sciences university grounded in the liberal arts. UNE is the number one educator of health professionals in Maine. Learn more about the University of New England at une.edu. On today's Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we're speaking with Adam Burke, who's the Executive Director for TEDx Dirigo. Hi, Adam. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. And you? Very well. I met Adam not too long ago at a TEDx event. And of course, I went to a TEDx event, uh, Latitudes, I think it was, mm-hmm. maybe about a year ago. Yes. I was really impressed with what you're doing. I'm not sure everybody in the state of Maine is familiar with TEDx. So tell me what that is. Sure. Well, I think a lot of people are familiar with the TED Talks, which are 18 minutes or less and available widely online from Sir Ken Robinson is a popular one that people see on their Facebook page or inbox. And those come out of a conference that happened in Long Beach, California and in Edinburgh, Scotland. And they've been going on for about 25 years. And starting in 2009, TED created the TEDx brand where X equals an independently organized event. And so since 2010, we've been putting on TEDx Dirigo, which focuses on main ideas we're spreading, leveraging the TED Talk format as well as the event uh, design. Adam, tell people what TED actually stands for. Sure. TED uh, originally stood for Technology, Entertainment, and Design, because in 1984, when the conference was founded, uh, Saul Worman thought those were the uh, fields that were shaping our future. And since then, it's become more broad, which so is commonly known as TED. And there are fellows now. There are people that actually have made TED sort of their, in addition to you, have made their TED their kind of big living. They're, this is what they do for work. Yeah, so the TED Fellows program has been going on for, I think, three years now. And it's a global program where they're bringing in people uh, that are working on world-changing ideas from our own Alexander Petrov, who works on Working Villages International in Congo, to people working on bioarchitecture and uh, devices that can quickly scan and determine if uh, water is safe to drink in uh, disaster areas. 
What What is the format of a TED Talk for people who aren't familiar with TED or TEDx? The TED Talk's founded on a rebirth of storytelling uh, for the digital age in particular, but it's uh, someone sharing what they're passionate about, what they know about, in a very compelling way that's personal and meaningful. Uh, the TED Talk relies on uh, visuals to some extent to accentuate what somebody's talking about, but it's a far departure from boring uh, PowerPoint presentations that include lists of texts and people reading off the slides. It, it's a talk done at best. And you, you have people who will do some work with the speakers themselves to have them be more comfortable and have them be able to put their point across? Yes, that's right. In, in year one, we allowed speaker coaching to be uh, an elective uh, piece, and we found very quickly that people, despite if they were uh, rampant public speakers, that they didn't know how to give a TED Talk. It's not something that we commonly do, so we do provide coaching for all our speakers. And I think it's it's important to note that these talks are truly inspiring, and some of them are actually transformational. So I can see why people would be intimidated going out and trying to do their own TED Talk. Yes, yeah, it's a very vulnerable place to be. It's about connecting with the audience in an authentic way. It's not just about showing research or giving the same talk that we've become accustomed and kind of numbed out to giving. It's about giving it in a fresh way and uh, really putting yourself out there. Was Seth Rigoletti, he was your most recent... Um I think speaker coach, is that right? Yeah, we have a cadre of speaker coaches. Uh, Janice O'Rourke's our ev- executive producer, and she heads up that team. And Seth Rigoletti is one of our lead coaches, as well as uh, Elise DeRosa. And this year we also have Bridie uh, McGreevy and John Marshall working on that team. And I, I only bring up Seth because he was, of course, on our show. So I've yes. met him, and, and it was very interesting to have him come in and talk about breathing and being present and and exactly what you're talking about this authenticity that you really have to have to go deep and and have that be part of what you're doing in order to not convince people but to bring people into your story yes yes Seth's a dynamic coach I got to work with him at Portland High School where we worked with uh, English no AP English students that uh, were finishing their senior year and watched him help them unlock what they were passionate about and how to talk about it it was magic it was pretty exciting stuff. Why did you do this? What's the, what is your background and what drew you to doing to bringing Ted to Maine? Yeah, my background is a zigzag path across many fields and professions, all uh, held under the umbrella of wanting to live well in my place and with others. So I've uh, been a teacher, I've been a social worker, I'm a Maine guide, I've uh, been a carpenter, uh, Baker, you know, typical main trajectory with uh, many, many different hats and fields. Uh, but all my life I've been motivated to imagine what life could be and was, of course, very disappointed by a lot of the uh, things that I saw in my life, whether it was um, the abuse of my good friend by his parents or it was um, the destruction of the woods down the street from my house or just all these things that were very harmful to to people I loved and places I cared about and wanted to help create a, a better world, right? So TED's a place where people like myself kind of gather that are hopeful, positive, optimistic, but also realistic and put their feet on the ground and get stuff done. It's not just about daydreaming, it's about uh, actualizing those things while being imaginative. So TED was a community for me that I uh, immediately resonated with. And then when the opportunity came for the TEDx program, I got involved because there's so many people that I love here in the state of Maine and I want 
people to know what we're doing here in the state and connect it to not only people outside of the state, but also in the state, because I would talk to people and they just wouldn't know that we had this incredible deep offshore wind farm in development or um, that the telling room was down on Commercial Street. And uh, this was a powerful platform to tell main stories. And I think that Genevieve can relate to this because Genevieve did a lot of work with the telling room, still involved with the telling room. And, um, and it is the power of story that seems to bring people um, to believe, to have hope. Well, I always say that after food, water, and warmth, what do humans do in the history of man? What do they do, or of, of humanity, I should say? They tell stories. So we don't think of storytelling as being a necessity, but it's actually the fourth thing that people do because it creates community. Right. And we would be lost without community. Yeah. And so this is really about this idea of villages, which is the reason that we had you come in and talk to us today, because you're building a village um, in a very different way than what some people might think of. You know, you're not out there with your hammer and your nails, although you've done that before, right. apparently, as a carpenter, yes. but you're, you're building a village of sort of like-minded individuals. Yeah, it's a place for authentic dialogue about things that we're passionate about, and it doesn't mean that we all have to agree on a particular talk that's been on the stage, but we're open to having the conversation in a way that's not common, certainly not what's in the comments of most of the online publications, right? So what we've been doing is creating this multidisciplinary cross-sectoral village uh, as an experiment for the past few years through TEDxDirigo, and what we've also discovered is we're part of a massive uh, global village. I was in Doha, Qatar with 750 other TEDx organizers earlier in April of this year, and it was a powerful experience to be with people that are like me, uh, that are uh, into organizing and uh, bringing these communities together. But these are people that are on the ground where where the ground's literally shaking, whether it's in Tunisia or Egypt or um, in Baghdad and elsewhere. And uh, it's a tremendous asset now that we have as Mainers too, is that we're connected to that uh, global village. Now, you described yourself as having this zigzag path, and TEDx is only, or TED, has only been around for 25 years. Is it interesting to you that you're doing this job that really didn't exist when you started your life? Sure, but it also makes sense for me. Uh, I'm not surprised by it. Uh, I've always been entrepreneurial in that way that I'll just go out and and create a space for myself that uh, allows me to live within my passions and express them and help others to do so. So this just became a a sturdy vehicle to do so. What are some of the topics that you've brought in and had people speak about for TEDxDirigo over the last, um, how many many of these have you had now? We've had three full day events and headed towards our fourth. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the topics and speakers that you think have been the most powerful? Uh, Well, our talks have been seen by more than 350,000 people around the world and more than 25,000 in the state, uh, which are good markers to me that the story spread. Uh, And of those, the ones that have spread the most are Zoe Wheel's talk on humane education and her work uh, there to transform the education system to create a generation of solutionaries. Uh, And that's a great talk from our first year. At Latitudes last year, Roger Duran's talk about his subversive plot to get everybody to grow their own food uh, was wildly popular and was selected by TED to be on their homepage. Uh, We've also had Steve Wessler from the Center for Preventing Hate, which is a very powerful, powerful talk that calls on us all to be courageous. Um, And most recently, we had Lynn Mickle-Brown talking about her work with Spark and Hardy Girls Healthy Women and tremendous uh, work that she and women all over the country are now doing. And... uh, 
Liz Neptune also gave a very powerful talk that talked very poignantly to, to us. Uh, the event was here in Portland, and uh, she came down essentially as a delegate from the Passamaquoddy and talked pretty frankly with us about uh, perceptions that we may hold about some of the initiatives that have happened up there and uh, what it's actually about for them. And so that, that was a powerful bridging of villages. These are all available where for people who'd like to go back and listen to them? They're all on TEDxDirigo.com, and you can click on presenters on the top and all the talks are available there as well as YouTube and you can like us on Facebook and find us that way too. We've interviewed Les Otten on our show um, and one of the, the theories that he brings up is this theory of disruptive thinking mm -hmm. that when you introduce an idea that that changes people's perspectives you can cause real change right. real transformation. How do you choose the speakers and how do they get to that point where they're the ones who present the idea or the philosophy? Sure. Well, we go through a pretty exhaustive process to get to our program. And that's, we generate a list of over 200 people at any given time uh, that we're whittling down to 16 for a program that we've curated around a common theme like Villages this fall. So those nominations come in from people nominating themselves or somebody else via our website. Uh, we're always generating our own lists of who's out there via media, via conversations with industry leaders and asking for their short lists. And then we have also started holding tryouts where people who register first get a chance to stand up in front of a live audience and give it a go. In terms of how people get to that point is different uh, as the individual. Uh, so. It, it's informed by people's life experiences. It's uh, things they just kind of fell into, whether it was through work or life. And it's always something that clicked with them in a very deep way that this is what their life's about and this is what they're going to do. Um, and then the quality of their talking isn't so much a qualifier. It's more the quality of the idea and the possible impact or its relevance at a particular point in time. Because again, we do work with coaches that help people give the talk of their life. We'll return to our program after acknowledging the following generous sponsors. The Body Architect was founded on the belief that mindful exercise improves the health of the mind, body, and spirit. Housed in an open, light-filled space in Portland, Maine, the Body Architect offers a cutting-edge fitness center, expert personal trainers, nutrition counseling, and a full class schedule. Visit thebodyarchitect.com or call 207-774-2196 and get started with The Body Architect today. And by Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine. At Orthopedic Specialists, ultrasound technology is taken to the highest degree. With state-of-the-art ultrasound equipment, small areas of tendinitis, muscle tears, ligaments, instability, and arthritic conditions can be easily found during examination. For more information, visit orthocareme.com or call 207-781-9077. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled. You need attention, 
advice, and individualized care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. How were you able to hone your own idea of authentic living? You know, what was the process that you went through? Because it does, again, you have this zigzag path. But I know you also have an education background. So was there were there steps you took in your own life? Yes. So it's been a decades-long process, at the very least, that... Uh, started when I was 18 and I moved from New Jersey to Boston and I was going to Boston University and studying psychology, which uh, was one of my first loves. And at the same time, just bumping into myself and cognitive dissonance uh, between who I wanted to be, uh, between truths that I was discovering around the world. Um, I started learning about Buddhism and started practicing meditation and just had particular experiences that really awakened me to some things that I think are well described by Eastern philosophy. And so that severely disrupted my worldview and uh, things that I thought were important. And so that really started me down that path. And then uh, it was again about how what I was able to do as I put life together, what experiences were offered to me, and again just staying true to certain principles within my own life, uh, always trying to be humble and, and to serve the greater good are just two simple things that I live by. Um, and those just unfolded in my graduate degree in education was was a synthesizing moment uh, as I studied uh, education as a broad field. Uh, my love of learning had persisted despite my uh, formal schooling, so I was really interested in what else was available and uh, studied things from Waldorf to Montessori to Reggio Emilia to free schooling to what was happening in various charter schools around the country. And through that, uh, I wrote a thesis that was called Holistic Connections Between Ecology and Character, which really brought together um, two strands of thought that inform who I am as a person. And one is ecology, and that's part of my background as a wilderness guide and naturalist, and also character development, which which is rooted heavily in Eastern philosophy, and seeing that these two things were essentially uh, part of an extension of each other. And so within that framework is how I now can walk out into the world and feel like a whole person instead of someone that's fragmented by that zigzag path that didn't always make sense to me. It actually kind of harkens back a little bit to Thoreau, except that he kind of went out into the wilderness and really never came back. You've kind of gone out into the wilderness and come back and are really attempting to live this authentic life that you've described. Yes, I'm trying very hard. Do you see a synergy between technology, entertainment, and design, which is a very broad platform. And what you're talking about is deep. It's going in. And I think, if I'm correct, because I've been to TEDx and I've talked with you before, you're really trying to get people to look inside as well as connect externally. How do you see that working as we move into the next decade? Yeah, it's an interesting question that I pose to myself because I'm actually quite a digital native, which is interesting because I'm just as comfortable being out poking through the woods, looking through mushrooms as I am, you know, being pretty prolific on social media. Uh, So what I'm finding through the TEDx event and the global community as a whole is that uh, technology is integral to keeping and fostering that community in between events. But that opportunity to come together, be in person, put the phones 
down and look at each other in the eyes and say, what are you passionate about? And tell me about that and connect on that level is vital. And that's the real glue. The, the rest is kind of a reaching out for one another where we can start to get a sense, but the magic happens once we come together and we can be with one another in that space. You did something, I think, that just ended very recently where you did this whole farm-to-school project. And it, it's kind of similar, where you're kind of reaching deep and digging into the soil and connecting to something very tangible. But I also understand that you involve technology and connections, and it wasn't just one school. Can you just describe that for people who are listening? Yeah, sure. For two years, I worked on a federal grant project that was targeting obesity prevention. And we were working with 12 schools across two districts in southern Maine. And our strategy was to increase access to healthy food and physical activity. And my passion was the farm to school element of that. Uh, So I did a lot of work connecting cafeterias to local farmers, to working through distributors, uh, as well as retraining cafeteria staff and bringing in the folks that were the reality reality behind the reality for Jamie Oliver's food revolution in West Virginia. And they did a a boot camp for, for all the food service folks in two districts. It was a pretty magical time. And it was cool to see people get empowered around that we can be creative and we can do this it doesn't have to be what we've been doing which again is the spark of TEDx is that oh we can do it differently Um, so that we created this distributed network of people across those schools as well as elsewhere in the state so people commonly empowered each other to keep going uh, and then created feedback loops with the students so that we encouraged people to also keep putting better food on the plates I imagine that this can't have all been easy. I mean, you're talking about generating hope and living authentically, and you're working with the digital technology, but also sort of back to the earth. I mean, what are some of the challenges that you've encountered personally and within the um, the umbrella, under the umbrella of TEDx? Yeah, challenges have been busyness and managing myself, my commitments, uh, being realistic uh, about what I can change for myself first and foremost, and then secondly, what I might be able to change outside of myself. Uh, Maintaining balance is the fundamental challenge. So I'm constantly working on that, making sure I have time to play, making sure I have time to to be with my family, um, as well as do the hard work that that needs to be done if uh, we want to turn the corner. Are there people in Maine or elsewhere that have been particularly influential or supportive as you've gone forward on this path? Yeah, I couldn't possibly name everybody. I mean, I've been deeply influenced by my mentor, uh, Wolf Richards, who I first met when I landed in Bridgeton, Maine. Um, And then as we pulled TEDx Diego together, I mean, the support that we've received from people internally who helped put on the event, it's all run by volunteers that put in over 2,000 hours per event to make it happen to uh, our our partners like Maine Magazine or the foundations, Quimby Family Foundation and Learner Foundation, uh, other businesses, other individuals that just really see this as being vital and important and have helped us since day one. How do people attend TEDx? You can attend TEDx by requesting an invitation, and you can do that online at TEDxDiergo.com. I'm very interested in the fact that it's it's a cross-section of ages. That's what that's what I've noticed, having gone to TEDx, having gone to some of the, um, the before and after type events. But I do notice a preponderance of what I would call young people. I still like to put myself in that category, but I know that, that you're young and... Um, Gil from Frontier, he's pretty young. He's up there doing this stuff. Uh, 
Do you feel like you're sort of moving your generation forward in a positive way? Is this important to you that, you know, the sort of the seventh generation idea? Yeah, it's vital to me. Well, I did hear after Latitudes that it was um, one of the most engaged multi-generational communities that some attendees had seen that was like outside of a school. So so that was important for me to hear. And I see TEDx Dirigo as being part of what is a beacon for folks my age and younger even uh, to help reverse the brain drain that we talk about in Maine, that it does talk about these really exciting things that are meaningful to people uh, of younger generations. Uh, they can see that it's happening, they can connect to it in a visceral way, and they can get involved. Um, so yeah, that's a vital part of this experience to me. It can't always be easy to maintain hope. Do you ever feel yourself getting discouraged? Sure, if I read the news too much. <laughs> and that's <laughs> what I also try to maintain as my media diet. Um, and. I do get discouraged. It could be when I see behaviors, and it can be stupid things during the day when I just see people being unconscious about their actions and the ramifications, whether it's throwing litter out of a car, which is, you know, an age-old kind of hippie irritation, but um, just not understanding our impacts on the world around us and however that manifests does rub me raw. And it comes back to, well, I need to make sure I'm doing what I need to be doing. And uh, if people want to talk to me about what I'm doing and learn from that, then all the better. But it's not anything that I'm going to force on anybody. The next event is October 20th at Bates College in Lewiston. Yes. And it's called? Villages. And Genevieve has already asked um, how you can register. So that's TEDxDirigo.com. TEDxDirigo.com. Yep, we have limited seating and we will sell out for sure. Yes, yes, I can attest to this, that it's a very difficult, um, it's a place you want to be. Yes. And let's just be clear, it's just a one-day event. It's a one-day event. Yeah, it's uh, from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. So what what do you know what the future looks like as far as TEDx Dirigo and as far as Adam Burke? Sure. No, I don't entirely, but continuing to do things that are deeply meaningful. Uh, we are in the process of minting a, a nonprofit organization that will do TEDx Dirigo and more, uh, and will be filing paperwork in the coming weeks. That's uh, to answer the question of how is this sustainable and also what comes next. After every event, it's a very powerful, moving encounter, but people are always looking for other ways to be engaged on a more regular basis. And we haven't been able to do that under the guise of TEDx Dirigo and on all volunteer power. So this new organization is going to provide uh, physical spaces as well as more event and programmatic spaces that people can dream and develop solutions together. Well, we appreciate your coming in and talking to us about how you're building a global village and your upcoming event, Villages, um, at Bates College in Lewiston on October 20th. So we wish you all the best. Really, this is very inspirational and the idea of authentic living. It sounds like you're living your life authentically and you provided people who are listening today a means of moving forward in that direction as well. So thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be talking with you. A chronic ache, sleepless nights, a feeling of something being not quite right. You can treat the symptoms with traditional medications and feel better for a little while and continue on with your busy days. But have you ever stopped to consider the what that's at the core of a health issue? Most times it goes much deeper than you think, and when you don't treat the root cause, the aches, sleeplessness, and that not quite right feeling come back but they don't have to. You can take a step towards a healthier, more centered life. 
Schedule an appointment with Dr. Lisa Belial and discover how a practice that combines traditional medicine with Eastern healing practices can put you on the right path to better living. For more information, please call The Body Architect in Portland at 207-774-2196 or visit doctorlisa.org today. Healthy living is a journey. Take the first step. This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. And by Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. With offices in Yarmouth, Maine, the Shepard Financial team is there to help you evolve with your money. For more information on Shepherd Financial's refreshing perspective on investing, please email tom at shepherdfinancialmain.com. As part of today's Global Villages show, we have with us Anwar Majid, who is the Associate Provost for Global Initiatives and the Director of the Center for Global Humanities at the University of New England. And I should say, actually, Dr. and Professor Majid. So thank you so much for coming in to join us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's really a pleasure. Dr. Majid, it was interesting because the University of New England is a sponsor of our show, and we went to them and we said, you know, we're very interested in hearing um, what it is that you're doing in your university system with the humanities and the importance of a liberal arts education. And they immediately said, this is the man you need to talk to. And they gave us your name. So clearly you have some background that's very, very valuable to the University of New England. But you're not from Maine. No. Where are you from? I was born in Tangier, Morocco, and I lived and I grew up in Tangier, and then I came to the States uh, in 1983 to New York City, and I um, studied film for a while at the School of Visual Arts, and then I then went back to graduate studies in English and so on, and then I got my degrees, and I came to work in Maine in 1991. Why Maine? Why did you? Why was Maine the state for you? Be, because there was an ad um, in a publication. Some the UNE was looking for somebody to teach certain courses in the humanities and writing. And it, the way they described UNE at that time, UNE was only in Biddeford, Maine. They described the ocean and the beautiful scenery. And I grew up in Tangier on the water, so I said, "Wow, this is an amazing place." So I applied and. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, I got the job. So, Did you come up in January it. or June? Oh, no, no, it was in May, I think. Oh, oh June. Maybe June. Maybe June, you're right. You so know. you got a little bit of a, of a real, the summer in Maine. Before oh, yeah, and I, was, and the, uh, I stayed in a bed and breakfast in Kennebunkport. Uh, it was owned by a history professor at UNE. He's now, he passed away a few years ago. His name is Jack Downs, wonderful guy. His, his wife is still alive, Eva Downs. So they, I was treated like... Um, Wonderfully, and um, I didn't I, at that time. I went, didn't know the difference between Kennebunkport and Biddeford and other places in the state. So it all looked good to me. Yes, and you and you chose a very beautiful spot because the University of New England is really it really is right on the water, the Biddeford campus. Absolutely, yeah, and I it was beautiful. It's, I couldn't believe a campus could look uh, that beautiful. I don't know whether you've seen the campus, but it's really uh, gorgeous. 
And, and one of the things that I was, I went to the University of New England website, as I told you before we came on air, and you had an interview with um, somebody from MPBN. You were describing the, the fact that the University of New England has this, it's known for its medical school, it's known for its sciences, it's known for um, things that are related to sort of the physical. But it's interesting that you were brought in to teach humanities and writing and liberal arts. And yes. Why? Why is that important to the University of New England? Well, there is a misconception out there, and people see UNE as a health sciences university, which it is, and it's very good at doing those things. But I think all, I mean, everybody at UNE strongly believe that you cannot really have a good education without a solid foundation in the liberal arts and the humanities and the social sciences. And so... Um, uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, you really cannot be educated, have a full education without having some acquaintance, at least or a deep appreciation of some of these subjects in the humanities and social sciences. And so we, you know, um, so I'm the person, uh, you know, I, I'm one of many people at UNE who have been trying to promote and make this part of UNE visible. And so years ago, uh, in 2000, uh, when, I came, when I came to work at UNE, there was no Department of English, for example. And, and then in 2000, the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences asked me to create one. So I created a Department of English, which is now doing very well. I mean, we still have great faculty, great publications, and yet a lot of, a lot of, a lot of people do not know that we have a great English department, for example. I mean, it's very common. And the same, the same may be true for history and other, and other pro- programs. So, and in 2009, the same person who was dean became provost, and then he asked me to, he, I, I proposed a Center for Global Humanities, and he said, yeah, it's a great idea, and so he, he supported it along with other members of the university. And, uh, and soon after that, I was, asked to head the global initiatives for the University of New England, but always coming at it from the perspective, the strong conviction that a, um, an education in the liberal arts, and including the, a big dose of the humanities and stuff like that, is absolutely indispensable for a well-educated graduate of UNE in the 21st century. And I think it's arguable that it's important for anybody graduating from any college or university in the 21st century. However, we've had a lot of people lately who are talking about the return on investment for a college degree. How do you respond to that? It, it, it's a big challenge. Um, I know enrollment in the humanities of the arts and philosophy, I mean, at least till recently, were declining nationally. Um, people, because people have to invest, like you said, in their education and job prospects for, for people graduating from these majors and these programs are not very good. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a major, it's a major challenge. It's a decision that I truly, fully appreciate. Um, um, the way I respond to parents, the way I respond to students, the way I respond to everybody, said if you have a sum of money Let's say, you know, you're a private university like the University of New England, and you have, um, I don't know, let's say $100,000 to invest in yourself. How would you like to invest that? Um, would, you li- would you get a degree in, um, in a very practical field? For some people, that's what they want. But also, there's a, there's a good argument to be made for investing in a, in a great 
education in philosophy or literature or history, you may not end up with a job. I think you will end up, I mean, with a richer life. Uh, because, you know, to live in a, what, those kinds of programs and educations, they help people look at life differently. And they, it, they, uh, they, um, they enlarge their perspectives and they broaden their horizons. And they make everything, I mean, to me at least, everything is interesting. I mean, I cannot walk from this block to the next without seeing something that interests me and intrigues my imagination. Well, and I think that the idea that you may not have a job is is maybe it's more that you may not have an immediate job right away, but there is a very good chance that you will end up with a job at some point and maybe even a better job than you would have gotten if you had invested in a technology degree. That's true. I mean, now at UNE, we're not a technology school. We are a health sciences university. And I think, you know, it's a great and noble vocation and pursuit because, you know, health, health care, you know, health care and uh, uh, is, is a vital component. It used to be in ancient Greece and before then a part of a liberal education. I mean, philosophers and physicians were one and the same. I mean, actually, they were, you know, uh, wise people. And nowadays we have managed to separate the two vocations as if they were totally, one is very practical and the other one is, is sort of the humanities-based enterprise. I think healthcare, medicine, and all those related fields should be thought of as part of a liberal arts pursuit and a humanistic endeavor. And if we manage to, to change perceptions, or at least to correct misperceptions about these fields, um, uh, we could maybe, um, we could make, we can have a more powerful argument to make. But it's not that you won't end up with a job. It just means that the path might zigzag a little bit, as Adam Burke from TEDx Dirigo talks about. Yeah, and and that's and that zigzagging is what frightens people, uh, and some people spend a a long time zigzagging, and they end up in places they never imagined they would. So, I mean, I mean, we cannot guarantee safe arrival. Uh, I mean, no one can. I mean. So as an educator, we cannot tell students, okay, you're, you're going to go through some zigzagging, and then maybe five years from then, you, maybe five years out later, you'd find a nice job in Maine Magazine or some, some other publication or some newspaper or whatever, or the museum. I think, um, I think you know, uh, what the best we can say is you're gonna ha- you may, it's going to be challenging, but you may have an interesting life. And the other thing I, sa- I tell people is look at the leadership in the globe. Uh, very often, people in positions of leadership are products of a humanities and social sciences background. They don't come from highly specified technology fields or other similar fields. You know, you look at Congress, look at big corporations, look at people who govern the world, really look at the United Nations. There are very few people who are graduates of highly, speci- highly specified or highly specialized, I should say, uh, academic fields. Well, that brings me to a question. I want to pull the lens back a little bit and talk about n- narrow versus broad um, philosophies in terms of another interest of yours in this global humanities, the idea of civilization and cultures moving forward. And I think one of the things that we're seeing right now in present is a uh, contentious time between fundamentalist, narrow visions, which are very prescribed, and a more broad-based, humanistic uh, 
philosophy. And I know that you're an expert in this, so I'd love for you to speak on that. Yeah, I'm challenging both sides of the divide. In other words, I spent the last 15 years or so writing on the clash between the West and the Islamic world, so to speak. And, you know, both sides uh, can be totally misguided. Um, and, you know, I, in 2007, I published a book with a title, uh, A Call for Heresy, and, you know, why dissent is vital to Islam and America, both sides. Um, but the point I'm trying to make to both sides is, um, you, know, fundam- you know, fundamentalism, you know, that um, is, is really what it is, a symptom of fear. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And uh, an open mind is, is it's a, it's a symptom of a realistic approach to life. Um, in the Middle Ages, very, and I'd like to say, a lot of medievalists would tell you that in the Middle Ages, people were very comfortable saying, if you ask them a question, they, re- they would reply by saying yes and no. Uh, nowadays, you know, in the last few centuries, that, that possibility, that option has been eliminated. And, and now we are living in a world where people insist on having things either black or white. They're very uncomfortable living in gray areas. And yet, it is that grayness which is what shaped the early ancient Greek philosopher's mind. They wrestled with that grayness. They tried to understand the meaning of life. The, the, great, the foundation of Western civilization and Islamic civilization, by the way, which is derivative from, that same, from the same origins in so many ways, uh, is the ancient Greek philosophy where people were wrestling with major existential ideas and uh, and they are not guided by fundamentalism. They were not guided by a powerful monotheistic deity that told them what, what is right or wrong. They had their gods, so many of them, but they were so uh, flawed and human in, in, in their, you know, in this, uh, in their, at least in the Greek perception and the way they behaved. So uh, I think, you know, if we only went back, and that's what I'm trying to do in the, in the next few years, I'm trying to bring some people back to ancient Greece to have them truly appreciate how the Greeks, how the Greeks really, uh, what the Greeks did was, what did was a, an incredibly innovative way to dealing with the complexities of existence. Uh, a practice that was completely eclipsed by Christianity, by the way, and, and the rise of monotheism, and only came back and very briefly with the Enlightenment in the 18th century, of which the United States, by the way, is a product. The American Revolution is a little, uh, it's, it's a small expression of the great spirit of the Enlightenment, which, whose philosophers were extremely radical. I mean, a lot of notions what we have today, like human rights and, and freedoms and democracy, were all the result of this very brief period in the 18th century, basically. And uh, I think we need to expand that and educate people about what that means for the future of human civilization. And I know that this is part of what you're doing with the center. Yeah. You've had speakers in, and I think Noam Chomsky came in and had a conversation yeah. that was basically on this subject. Yes. To, what exactly, I mean, the center is a center, but what is it trying to do? What's, what are you, what's, what's your mission, and how are you accomplishing it? When I proposed, when I made a proposal for the center, I said it would have, it have, to, it would have to be 100% public. Everything the Senate does has to be for the public of, of our region, of our area, of our city, and so on. And, and it is basically what I felt, what, uh, and the University of New England agreed with me, was that there is a glaring lack 
for, for, uh, for a, uh, a forum in the city uh, or in the region uh, to have ideas, serious ideas discussed where people would be invited to participate. Uh, and now, by the way, we've expanded our programming to libraries in Holton and Bangor. Uh, we are streaming live, we are providing books, and we are paying for faculty there to, to, to teach some of the seminars where we are holding at the center, all free. Everything we're doing is free and open to the public. And we, it's an investment, we think. And if you don't invest in the intellectual and cultural life of your community, like, like this radio program is doing, uh, the community ends up being severely impoverished. And it's not a right place for students to get an education for anybody, to, anybody else to be. People do not understand. And one of the great speakers we had, by the way, the first year we had was Richard Sims. He's an expert. He's an economist who specializes in education. And he basically made a very convincing financial argument as to why investing in education is the best thing anyone can do. So I think culture tends to be underrated when bottom line thinkers come and you know, gather around a table and they begin to see for thinking of things of they, they they begin to look for things to cut culture is the first one one of the first things to go that's a huge mistake because you may create um that impoverishes a lot and then and i think it's a uh, we should reconsider the role of culture not only in a democratic and, uh, and society, but in the well-being of any community that we happen to participate in. We'll return to our interview after acknowledging the following generous sponsors. Robin Hodgkin, Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor at Morgan Stanley Smith Barney in Portland, Maine. For all your investment needs, call Robin Hodgkin at 207 7710888 Investments and services are offered through Morgan Stanley Smith Barney LLC member SIPC and by Booth Accounting and Business Management Services Payroll and Bookkeeping Business is done better with Booth Go to boothmain.com for more information How would you say the center helps one of the things that's happening is the election approaches and um, has been happening in this country for about 10 years is a decline in discourse. It's very difficult for people who have opposing views, particularly politically, yes. to talk to one another and learn from one another. Does your center address how to repair those those rifts in our village of America? I would say? Well, I mean, we, we, are, we can only work in our community, we, we, but we are, our programming is available uh, globally, we're streamed live. People can watch us live from around the globe, live when the event when the event is happening. But um, I, I personally, and I'm trying. I'm in fact been looking for speakers who are of a different mold than we usually get. I mean, let's say most of our speakers are of a liberal bent. Uh, I, I am really. I've been asking people to see if they can find interesting conservative speakers, you know, um, and you know, very, a lot of my friends can't think, can think of them, but, I, um, but I, I really do want us to have conservative speakers so we can have a real genuine dialogue, because it seems like cultural spheres tend to be overwhelmingly liberal uh, for, for an understandable reason, because people spend a lot of time thinking about global issues and so on, reflecting about their lives and the future and paths of civilization. So reflection, you know, sort of tempers a little, some of the extremism that is 
embedded uh, in us in some ways. But if you look nationally, this nation seems to be divided between you know liberals and a variety of conservatives. We need to hear those voices and get them engaged. Um, so I'll, I'll be trying to do some of that in the well, future. But if, <laughs> Lisa and I are both products of a liberal arts college here in Maine, Bowdoin. Yes, yes. And that was always one of the goals of that education was to bring opposing points of view together in discourse so that a greater solution, and it wasn't even a solution, but a greater conversation could be had. The community as a whole gets impoverished when you can't even talk about these issues yes. without there being so much anger and, and volatility. What are some of the ways that our listeners can learn about things that they might not know about? I mean, you said you have some lectures. Yeah, we do lectures. We do reading associated with those lectures. If you go to a website, you know, you'll find uh, the Center for Global Humanities website. You'll find each lecture, public lecture, is associated with a reading assignment. So people have, like, uh, it's already posted for till April 2013. So people can read a book ahead of time and come to the event, talk to the writer, the author, and have it, have the book signed and a reception, wine and cheese, and all kinds of good stuff at the, at the art gallery in Portland, on the Portland campus, and then attend the lecture. And, and it's, it's an invitation for an interest, for dialogue. And um, uh, I hope people take advantage of these events. I don't know how, how you know, I'm trying, I am keep pushing for more visibility for the, of the program. It's a, it's a resource that is available now, but if it doesn't get supported, as you know, you know, things might change, and I don't want, it to, I don't want them to change. <laughs> so to that parent that's their, their son or daughter at this point yeah. is about to embark on a liberal arts education, how would you, what would you say to that parent as they watch their child go, struggle with these ideas, that they want to be a philosophy major, but maybe it won't get them a job. Yes. I would say what I tried to say earlier. If you have, if you're, if you're, if you want to invest in your child, if you want to, you have some money to invest in your child, um, you know, you have options. You know, your child is, is curious about these kinds of things. And but you think there's no outcome, there's no money in that thing, you know, they may be poor and starving in 10 years or 20 years from now, and it's better for them if they did X. But in the end, um, it's, it's only a guess. So you're, you're, it's safer, it's a safer bet to go with the child and let them explore the things that they're passionate about. And, and if they lose, it's a, well, they've tried everything. The parents are not responsible for the loss. They have, they have, they have supported the child in their quest for whatever it is they were looking for. And then the child, now an adult and now a, you know, well, whatever, an accomplished professor, an accomplished and professor, are, are responsible for whatever it is they have become. They're not fully responsible. I shouldn't. That's too much, too harsh of a statement. But it's. Um, uh, their destiny has been traced for them without a lot of coercion from the parents. I think that we could keep talking for a very long time. I mean, that's the idea about humanities and liberal arts. I think it does bring us back to this idea of the village, whether it's a local village or a global village, and maybe the idea that it takes all different sorts of people living within a village as opposed to one mindset. It sounds yes. like that's what the University of New England is trying to do, is, is make that possible. Yes, and I, I would say, and I've been saying this for years now, I, I wish I could write a book on conversations. I think a conversation is the most radical thing anyone can do. Because a conversation is open-ended. 
and it's not about the truth. It's it's the when people are having a conversation, there it's really it's it's a medium for staying connected and being alive. The moment somebody said, "Okay, I have I know the truth," you know, that's it. I'm not going to be convinced. They have killed the conversation and they have killed the relationship. So conversations are open and never and never about the truth. They are always a, it's it's a never-ending quest. Uh, which is designed to be as such in order to facilitate relations in the community. And the moment somebody shows up with the absolute truth, uh, they, they change everything and they create a divided community. Well, on, on that note, talking about conversations, I think that we will give you mo- our most sincere um, appreciation for coming in and speaking to us on this topic of global villages. We've been talking with Professor Dr. Anwar Majid from the University of New England. So thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you've been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast Show number 51, Global Villages, airing for the first time on September 2nd, 2012. Our guests today have included Adam Burke, the Executive Director of TEDx Dirigo, and Professor Anwar Majid of the University of New England. We know that we are continuing to build our global village with much hope and happiness and gratitude for all the support we've received over the last year. Please do become part of our community. Like us on Facebook. Visit our website, doctorlisa.org. Sign up for our weekly e-newsletter. Or give us a call and let let us know what you think. This has certainly been an interesting journey for us over the past 51 episodes. As we go into year two, we thank you for all of your support. We really wouldn't be able to build a global village if it weren't for the help of those who are building the village with us. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. Thank you for being a part of our world. May you have a fantastic day. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin at Remax Heritage, Robin Hodgkin at Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Marcy Booth of Booth Financial Services, UNE, the University of New England, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Apothecary by Design, and The Body Architect. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is recorded in downtown Portland at the offices of Maine Magazine on 75 Market Street. It is produced by Kevin Thomas and Dr. Lisa Belial. Editorial content produced by Genevieve Morgan. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. For more information on our hosts, production team, main magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, visit us at doctorlisa.org. Download and become a podcast subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial through iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. <laughs>